my first aha moment was the X Factor and the, the X Factor stretch, not just the X Factor, the X Factor being the coil, the X Factor stretch being the additional coil or the additional stretch you get in the downswing. The aha moment there was uh, when we presented this research and Golf Magazine had a Golf Science Prize and we won second prize uh, in the Golf Science Prize for the X Factor stretch realizing that it was another contributor to the power in the downswing. When I asked Dr. Phil Cheatham, the 3D guy, what his biggest aha moment was when working with players in the kinematic sequence, that's what he shared. So today we're diving into this term as there are a few things worth understanding and a few things to clear up in regards to the X factor and X factor stretch. Let's get into it. You're listening to the Golf Science Lab. We're bringing to light important research and concepts you need to understand to improve your learning and performance. Hey, I'm your host, Cordy Walker. Thank you so much for joining us. On this season of the show, we're looking at the golf swing, and we're talking to some of the leading biomechanists who do research on the swing and are going to help us understand what's going on. If you enjoyed this episode, we're doing something here to help the podcast. We're doing a little review giveaway. So head over to the website, golfsciencelab.com. We have all the details over there with an article. But we are giving away some new Golf Science Lab t-shirts for reviews. If you leave it on the podcast in iTunes and then send an email to freeshirt at golfsciencelab.com with some info like your address, size, and a screenshot of your review, you're entered to win one of these new shirts. Check it out over at golfsciencelab.com. Lab.com, and thank you so much for helping out the Golf Science Lab mission. This episode is brought to you by KVEST. What is KVEST? Well, it's a 3D human motion learning system that helps coaches measure, assess, coach, and train to improve player performance. The part that KVEST does better than anyone else is the coaching and training. Their biofeedback, which is music which lets you know when you've moved into the right position, is an experience that everyone needs to have. The first time I used it, I couldn't believe how simple it made training the golf swing with simple external feedback. It's incredible. And it's gotten even better by going from static training to movement-based training with their new program called Next. Head over to k-vest.com GSL and watch a video of Martin Hall showing you the system in the real world. And if you're a golfer, find a coach near you that has a system. And if you're a coach, to learn more about it. Our story starts here in the early 90s with a golf magazine article from Jim McLean. It was the birth of this term, the X factor, which has become pretty well known over the years. And here's what he described the X factor as the difference in the angle between the shoulders and the hips. So for example, if your shoulders were 90 degrees turned at the top of the backswing, and then your hips were 45 degrees, then your X factor would be 45 degrees, or 90 degrees minus 45. So along with Mike Mateague, Jim McLean came to this concept that longer hitters had more X factor in the backswing than shorter hitters. So it's concluded that a large X factor at the top of the backswing was the key to hitting the ball far. But that's not where we're ending today. In fact, this is just the beginning of where we start this story. Yeah, I want to explain the difference between X-factor and X-factor stretch and what each of them. X-factor is simply the coil or the separation between the amount of of your hips and the amount of turn of your shoulders or ribcage. Now, X-factor typically has been thought of as how much you've got at the very top of your backswing. 
but actually there is a whole graph that comes out of how much turn you've got or how much separation between your shoulders and your hips throughout the entire swing. So at a dress, you might have a small X factor of 10 degrees because you're something like 10 degrees because your shoulders or your upper body is a little more open to the target than your hips are. Then as you begin in the backswing, your hips turn and your shoulders turn and very quickly your shoulders surpass the amount of rotation or the amount of turn of your hips and you get that separation which puts attention on your core muscles and provides the energy to power the downswing. So separation gives you the ability, one, to contract those muscles over a large distance or rotational distance and the stretch also, as I mentioned, puts more of a force into the muscles. Now you might have 45 degrees of hip turn and 90 degrees of shoulder turn, so your X factor would be 45, simply 90 minus 45. However, at the beginning of the downswing, because we find that typically the pros will start with the pelvis turning towards the target first, which means that now the X factor is stretching a little bit. You might be 45 degrees, but if the hips turn an additional five degrees in the downswing towards the target, then that X factor could increase to say 50 degrees. And so now you've got five degrees of what we call X factor stretch. So I don't want the confusion between the X factor and the X factor stretch. They are two different things. X factor is simply the separation. X factor stretch is very specific to the transition phase and it's the increase in stretch created by the pelvis turning before the shoulders into the downswing. All right, so we have this term now, the X factor stretch. So the top of the backswing is defined as when the club transitions from the backswing to the downswing. But X factor stretch is defined as the increase in the X factor from when the pelvis transitions from the backswing to downswing to its maximum value early in the downswing. So the top of the backswing typically actually occurs when the pelvis transitions and reaches its max. And we know from our conversations about the kinematic sequence in our previous episode that 89% of tour players start their downswing with the pelvis. That's why this bump or this X-factor stretch is occurring and brings these two topics together really nicely for us. Here's an example from one of Dr. Cheatham's papers on the topic. So a less skilled player might have an X-factor of 38 degrees at the top of their swing. On his downswing, he only stretches this to a max of 38.5 degrees, giving an X-factor stretch of only 0.5 degrees, or in other words, his hips and shoulders rotated down virtually together early in the downswing. Whereas the highly skilled player had an X-factor of 60 degrees, and on the downswing, he stretches his X-factor to 73.5 degrees, an X-factor stretch of 13.4 degrees. In the early stage of his downswing, his hips have rotated significantly faster than his shoulders, causing a stretch in the torso of 13.4 degrees. And this is shown by a rapid change in the graph between top and max. So that is an example of what X-factor and X-factor stretch might look like with a highly skilled and less skilled golfer. But when they did this research, they also looked at just the X-factor. Did X-factor was it different between highly skilled and less skilled? And here's another quote from this paper. 
After contrasting the X-Factor at the top of the backswing and its maximum early in the downswing for highly skilled and less skilled golfers, we found that the X-Factor at the top of the backswing was not significantly larger for the highly skilled players than less skilled players. All right, so this X-Factor that they saw was not really that different between highly skilled players and less skilled players. But here's what they did found that was different. On average, the highly skilled golfers showed a 19% increase in the X factor due to the stretch at the beginning of the downswing, and the less skilled, only 13%. This suggests that the X factor stretch is more important to an effective swing than simply X factor at the top of the backswing, and that X factor should actually increase early in the downswing before it rapidly decreases to impact. This research also indicates that the aim of the backswing is not just to put the golfer in the correct position for the downswing, but also to dynamically tension the torso muscles correctly to allow them to contract maximally during the downswing, hence generating optimum power. And if you check out this study, we have a full link on the post along with this paper. It's really good, super easy to read through and insightful. I recommend checking it out over on Golf Science Lab. And one more clip that I want to share from this that's super revealing on this concept of the backswing and X-Factor is this. For most highly skilled golfers, just prior to the transition from the backswing to the downswing, the pelvis slows down and changes direction to rotate forward while the upper body continues to rotate backwards. This head start of the pelvis moving towards the ball causes an increase in the stretch of the large and powerful rotating muscles of the trunk. Early on in the downswing, the pelvis has a higher rotational velocity than the upper body and so will outrun the upper body toward the ball. Because of this initially higher velocity of the pelvis, the X factor increases and in some highly skilled golfers, it grew by as much as 15 degrees. All right. So... Why should you care about this in the swing? And what is it actually doing to the body? The reason they should care about that is because you're getting that benefit from the muscle of what we call the stretch shorten cycle. By turning the hips a little bit before the shoulders, you're putting additional tension into the core muscles, the obliques and the abs and the lower back, which builds the tension, builds the force higher. And because of what's called the force velocity curve, that allows you to actually contract the muscles more forcefully. Muscles can produce more force in an eccentric contraction. That's where they are stretching and lengthening than they can in a concentric contraction, which is where they're contracting and shortening. And so if you can eccentrically contract, that is to say stretch a little bit, then you can provide more power in the downswing and end up with a higher club head velocity velocity for less amount of work, if you like. And so that extra stretch produces um, some elastic energy, it produces a stretch reflex, and it produces an additional force in the muscle itself. So that's why you should care. You don't have to do it. Can you swing well without it? Yeah, you can. But it's one of the factors in expert or elite motion that we see across all sports. Any sport where there's any jumping or throwing or kicking, they all have this characteristic. There's another factor that we need to look at here that's kind of interesting because many female golfers have a large X-factor stretch. In fact, more than many men. But 
they're still outdriven by men with a lower X-factor stretch. So there's more to this than just the amount of X-factor stretch in someone's swing. However, more is not always better because one of the things about an, an X-factor stretch or a pre-stretch, it also has to be fast. You can't just stretch and stretch and stretch and then decide to close it back up again because you'll have missed the timing. So quite often in very flexible women, we see a very large X-factor stretch, but it's not effective because the strength in the muscle uh, was behind that stretch. In other words, they've, they've gone past the amount of stretch. So it's basically a, a fast stretch and release. So the velocity of that stretch is, is important too. So we've looked at this a little bit now. We understand what X-factor and X-factor stretch is. Maybe we even understand why the X-factor stretch is important for generating more power and more distance. But let's get practical. What can we do about it? How can we get our bodies into a better position to improve X-factor stretch for us? Well, yeah, the one that pops to mind is, is just that separation drill, the X-factor stretch drill, where you basically you'll stand in uh, a dress posture with your hands across your chest. You won't have a club in your hands. And you'll just see if you can even rotate your pelvis without turning your shoulders. A lot of people can't even do that. So that's step number one. Can you dissociate the rotation of your pelvis without turning your shoulders? And then vice versa. You turn your shoulders or your ribcage while you're keeping your pelvis stable. So it's the difference between stability and mobility. You need to have both. You need to be able to have one section of your body, one segment of your body be stable when the other section is mobile so that it can rotate around a stable base, if you like. And by the way, stable is a little bit sometimes misleading. Stable does not necessarily mean stopped. Stable just means the ability to support the force created upon it by the segment above it. So if my shoulders are turning, my pelvis doesn't have to stop to become stable. It can be stable if my shoulders fire and it is able to keep turning and keep firing and keep rotating and it's strong enough to support that uh, rotation of the thorax or the rib cage. Go ahead and try this next idea out that Dr. Cheatham's going to share. If you're in a car, maybe hit pause and wait till you get out or try it later. Uh, but if you're walking around outside at home, please go ahead and try this out. Uh, it'll be amusing for everyone watching you, that's for sure. So you basically would simply stand in front of a mirror and try and turn your hips a little bit. If you can't do it by yourself, you get some assistance. You get a person to say, all right, I'm going to hold your shoulders. And now you try and turn your hips or vice versa. You hold your shoulders and I'm going to turn your hips for you. And once that clicks, especially if you're watching yourself, then you just keep repeating that until you get a hold of it. And then it progresses from the conscious part into the unconscious part where now you can do it automatically. Might not be that easy for you. And it might actually be something worth doing and strengthening some of those muscles in your body that you didn't even know that you had. And again, in this series of podcasts, we're not making suggestions for your swing or telling you to swing a certain way. Not even close. We heard in the first episode that there's a lot of variability in this. Everyone's different. So you have your own unique body and swing. We're simply looking at some of the research and looking at some of the trends and concepts here. Speaking of trends, while doing some of this research on the X-Factor stretch, they found something else as well. We talked a little bit about the X-Factor stretch, and we talked also that that occurs at the shoulder. We call that shoulder adduction stretch. 
but it also happens at the wrist. The cool thing about the wrist, though, is it's one of obviously one of the most mobile joints around, and there's three degrees of freedom of motion in the forearm and the wrist. By the way, just uh, for your information, the wrist does not have three degrees of freedom in and of itself. Your wrist can flex and extend, and it can radial and ulnar deviation or deviate. But if you were to grab a hold of your wrist with your right hand, say you grab your left wrist with your right hand and you squeeze, you cannot supinate and pronate. You can't rotate your wrist around its long axis. That comes from your forearm. So that being said, we do have three degrees of freedom of the whole arm. And so we can now look at the different sorts of curves that we have in each one of those a little bit and say, well, let's just simply look at wrist release. Let's look at an angle between the lead forearm and the club shaft itself. And let's look at the shape of that. You'd be right that when you set the club, that angle would be or thereabouts, which would mean your club is at 90 degrees to your lead forearm. And if you're at the top of the back swing, we'd call that the set position. Now, as you release, typically, if you're a novice, you would tend to release that angle very smoothly and you wouldn't get any power out of it. Whereas if you are a uh, touring pro or an elite athlete who knows how to maintain that wrist angle into the downswing, then in our curve, we would typically see a flat spot where you're maintaining that 90 degrees and then all of a sudden you release it in kind of like cracking the whip and that's where you get a lot of your speed from. That being said, I thought, okay, well that's the way everyone's going to do it. But it turns out that there's very different profiles for different golfers. Like if you look at a Sergio Garcia, for example, you know, you look at him and you have what's called downswing loading or float loading. So there we see at the top of the backswing, you have a wrist angle of say 90 and then on the way down, it, it decreases even more. It loads, it loads the wrist and decreases say to 80, maybe 10 degrees or so, helping with that stretch shorten cycle and firing into the downswing. We then have different styles like Ernie Els, for example, he would tend to start to cast the club a little bit and you're going, oh my goodness, a tour pro casting the club, but he doesn't. He actually reloads the club just before release and that wrist angle decreases slightly just before release. We call that a pre-release loading or a, a release and reload. So those are some different flavors of the curves. And that's what's very interesting about using three-dimensional motion analysis is there are more ways than one to skin a cat and so you can start to categorize these and see what types of techniques and what type of biomechanics different tour pros use in the different parts of the swing. With respect to the extra stretches and the downswing joint loading that we're talking about here, um, it is interesting to look at the differences between men and women. And we found that the women and the men have a similar uh, core stretch and a similar shoulder stretch, but the men have like six degrees of wrist stretch and the women only have about two degrees of wrist stretch. So it's obvious then from that data that the, the men have learned that downswing loading, have learned that wrist stretch and use it more often than the women do to gain that extra power in the downswing. Thank you so much, Dr. Phil Cheatham. What another great episode with him. He is the 3D guy and definitely has so much knowledge to share. If you're interested in learning more, make sure to check out some of the workshops that he's doing. They're called Forces in Motion. You can find those at his website. If you Google Dr. Phil Cheatham, it'll pop right up. I recommend checking it out, especially if you're a golf coach. That is a place to learn a lot of good stuff. 
And if you're interested in learning more about this conversation about X-Factor Stretch, we have a bunch of resources and links along with this, diving into some next level ideas around this, like rate of recoil, rate of stretch. Uh, And on this post, along with this podcast, you can find all of that info there. If you have any questions or suggestions, make sure to shoot me a message. Hey, at golfsciencelab.com. Would love to hear from you. And thank you so much for joining us. This episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker. It's edited and mixed and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions. Music includes Under Suspicion by Lee Rosevier, Attribution 4.0 International, and In a Moment by Lee Rosevier, Attribution 4.0 International. Thank you so much for joining us on the Golf Science Lab. We'll see you all next week.